Well, if you wanted to get me to come anywhere, just offer me a book. You know how they say preachers love books? It's like uh, you go to um, any place that there's a, that there's a good, good selection. It's like going to like a kid going to a, a candy store. And tonight we're going to start this series on I Love My Church. And the little companion that you have, hopefully everybody got a, a copy, one per, per family. It was by, it's by Tom Rainer. I am a, I am a church member. Now, I want to tell you, um, this is not a pre-made study. So this is not like, I don't know, um, what was Henry Blackaby's thing several years ago, experiencing God, or this is not like the purpose, uh, purpose-driven life. I, I actually just I, I purchased the book. I found the book sometime last year. Actually, it was in the, the Word of Life bookstore. And I bought it because I like the I like the title. I also like the size of it. It's it's really small, and I think you'll find it very very easy to read. And I read it, and it was just extremely extremely helpful. About the time that I got a hold of it was when we were we were going through the evaluation process as a church of of how we can you know, looking at our weaknesses, how we can make things better, our health update report, and I really believe that the Lord put this book in my hand to, to encourage my heart. And, and from that point forward, I said, you know, we really need to share that. I, I, I would like to, like to share it, and I think it would be great for our, our whole congregation to, to read it. Now, many of you more mature saints can, can likely remember when, when times were, were different as far as the church is concerned. Many of you can remember when the church was the center of society. If you can, that's probably going to date you. You can remember when the only social event that, not just that you went to, that there was, was at the church. Um, If you wanted to find a woman or you wanted to find a man, you went to the church and you went to the church social and that's where you... Many of individuals have come to Christ looking for a wife, all right? They showed up, and the Lord got a hold of their heart. You can remember going to dinner on the grounds. You can remember church socials, church sings, church everything. In those days, you were either working with your family or connected with the church in, in some specific way. There were no ball games especially on Wednesday nights. Do you remember that? I mean, people wouldn't have even dreamed of scheduling a ball game on, on Wednesday night. Nothing ever on Sunday. You even had to hunt for a church, I mean, for a store to be open on, on Sunday. And in those days, there was no social media, no handheld devices, no Internet. The good old days, Right? I'm amening that as well. Um, sure, there for sure there were few fewer distractions, and nothing was typically organized outside of a body life if you were a believer. And no doubt, cultures changed as it always has. And while there are new blessings and new challenges to go along with that change, what hasn't changed is the vital importance of the church of Jesus Christ. How we gather, what we do whenever we gather, when we gather may look a little different, but God never planned for the church to be outmoded. 
God doesn't have a plan B or C or D or anything else whenever it comes to His church. It is plan A. It's a centerpiece of the Christian life. I mean, you can get really complicated and, and we can break down Greek words and we can look at outlines and otherwise, but the Bible really is pretty simple. You gather to be edified, to be built up as a body, to be equipped so you can build one another up, and then you go reach the world for Christ. Edification and evangelism. Edification and evangelism. That edification and evangelism both intersect with the local church, with your church. Not just the church. Oh, I love the church, but I love my church, this church. Now, I recall reading about a, about a movement that George Barna attempted to start several years ago. I've shared some of these quotes with you before, but, but they, they came back to my mind whenever I was preparing this. He, he, he talked about a movement to embrace a churchless Christianity, a churchless Christianity. In his book, Revolution, Barna says that we're in, I'm quoting now, a spiritual revolution that's reshaping Christianity, personal faith, corporate religious experience, and the moral contours of the nation. But unlike the Great Awakening, which brought people into the church, this new movement entails drawing people away from reliance upon the local church into a deeper connection with the reliance upon God alone. He writes, whether you become a revolutionary immersed in, minimally evolved, involved in, or completely disassociated from the local church is irrelevant to me. And within boundaries, it's irrelevant to God. That's what George Barnes said. I'd like to string him up on a tree. I swear I would. Barna's point is God is good. The church is not bad, but it's just not necessary. It's not necessary today. He ends with this quote. What matters is a godly life. So if the local church facilitates that kind of godly life, then it's good. If a person is able to live a godly life outside of a congregation, then that too is good. That's how Barna ends the ends the book. Unfortunately for him, and anyone who listens to him, Barna draws all of his conclusions from culture and never bothers to look in the Bible. But if you go to the Scriptures, you're going to find a completely different message. You're going to find the message that says whether you are in the New Testament church era with the Apostle Paul or whether you're in 2016, the church is the centerpiece of of the Christian life and God's program. The church is of profound importance. It's not just nice, it's necessary. The church is the fullness. In the church, the fullness of God dwells. God loves His church. And because of that, we should love the church too. We shouldn't just love the church. We should express that affection by loving our church. How can we love the church? Well, what we're going to see in this series is tangible, practical, whatever word you want to put there, ways to express God's love in your heart for His church by loving your church. So it shows some real practical terms in, in, in how do we do that. Now, whenever you pick up this book, one of the things that captivated me was the introduction and the story. 
and you're going to read it, you're going to see, um, I'm going to give you an overview of it, but the introduction is, is really gripping, at least it was for me. Probably it was gripping because I've heard the story before, only the, the names have been changed to protect the guilty. Rainer starts with the book with, a, with this introduction called The Tale of Two Church Members. He describes a series of breakfast meetings that begin a discussion between two men named Michael and, and Liam. And they start meeting for breakfast on, on, a, on early morning, and, and they begin to realize they both go to the same church together, and they, re- they realize they have a lot in common. They both have three kids. They both love football. They're pretty passionate about it, so they banter about about that. They discuss politics and family and sports and, of course, the church that they, that they both attend. This goes on for several months. And one morning, the conversation turned serious. Michael had noticed a change in Liam and, and his wife at their, at their Bible study. Liam no longer seemed interested in in studying or even discussing the Bible. And, and when he spoke about the church, his comments were often critical. Nothing major at first, maybe an off-the-cuff statement about he didn't enjoy something that happened in the, the service that morning or, or a misspelling in the pastor's outline, which if you come here is probably common. Even though Michael noticed these things, he was still caught completely by surprise. And what came next? The Monday morning that they met, Liam seemed more distracted than others. He didn't touch his breakfast. And about ten minutes into the breakfast, he he cut to the chase. He said, Michael, Lana, and I have decided to leave the church. And after a pause that felt like eternity, Michael asked, why? What's wrong? And Liam's answer took him back even further. William said, Lana and I have come, came to the church to learn deeper truths about the Bible, but, but Pastor Robert is not feeding us anymore. We're not getting anything out of his messages, and sitting in the service on Sunday morning is just a, a waste of time. I'm quoting directly from the, from the book, so you don't think I'm making it up. Michael didn't know what to say to Liam as he went on. Liam went on... That, There are several great people in the church, but honestly, Michael, our church is full of hypocrites. Did you hear Jim at the basketball game? He was screaming at the refs, making a fool of himself. What kind of a testimony is that? And, of course, everyone knows about Nancy. She's supposed to be a godly woman, and I've heard her and Bob are barely talking. Liam went on, not to mention Pastor Rob. He acts like he cares. When Lana's dad was in the hospital for hernia surgery, he never even visited him. Michael knew why Pastor Rob wasn't able to come, but it wasn't time to argue. And and Liam ended with this. Michael, I really like you and Karen and the kids. You're all class acts. You all seem to be very enthused about the church and keep serving and contributing. But don't take this wrong, but I wonder at times if you're just blind to all the problems that the church has. I guess the bottom line is we are just two different types of church members. And that's how he introduces the book. That's gripping to me. Maybe you've heard a conversation like that before. Maybe you've even been part of of one. Have you ever wondered how two people can sit 
can go to the exact same church, sit under the exact same sermon, one grow and hang on every word, and, and the other be disgruntled and say that they're not being fed. Have you ever wondered how that works? It's the same church, same service, same sermon, same pastor, same everything. For sure, that means there's different preferences and different styles. But the answer doesn't lie within the church or the sermon or the song. And in a lot of cases, even the pastor, it lies within the heart of the individual that's listening. Cultures change. Godless politicians have torn the fabric of our nation. They're truly hypocritical church members, but the strength of a church is rooted in the way its members understand what it means to be part of the body of Christ. Rainer says, When we join expecting others to serve us, feed us, and care for us, we, we don't, like other hypocrites but fail to see the hypocrite in the mirror. Sounds like what Pastor Joe told me whenever I told him I didn't want to come to the Lord because the church is full of hypocrites. He said there's room for one more. You just bow the knee and come on. God didn't give us the church to be country clubs where we see our tithes as paying dues and evaluate our attendance based upon the perks and the privileges that we get. He placed us in the church to serve, to care for others, to pray for our leaders, to learn, to teach, to give for the sake of the gospel. That's, that's why I'm here. That's why you're here. And many churches are weak because they've turned the meaning of that upside down. And this series, this book, is aimed at trying to help us either be encouraged that we have the ship the right way up or to get it right in our in our own heart. And because all right action begins with, with right thinking, I want to share with you five biblical reasons that the Bible gives of why you should do exactly what this says, why you should love your church. Five biblical reasons of why you should love your church. And the first one is, should be very obvious, the church is Christ's Body. I want you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through, through 20. And when we're walking through these, I want you to try to force yourself not to think about the church as a whole, but I want you to try to force yourself to think about Timberlake Baptist Church, my church, because I think it's easy to read the Bible and hear the word church and, and think of this big amorphous blob out there that you can't get your arms around. And think about it tangibly, practically, of how it relates to you and here in, in our church. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, considered one of the Mount Everest passages in all the Bible about Jesus Christ. Describes the preeminence of, of the Lord. It's one of the most Christ-exalting passages in all the Bible. And in the middle of this passage that tells us about the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ, the church is right in the middle of it. Look, if you would, at verse 15. We'll start reading there. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And watch this. He is before all things. He's, he's in first place. He's, he's preeminent. And in him all things consist. They all hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. Now, with all that prominent language, with exalted status, the first position, God also includes the church as part of his plan to exalt the Son. Now, that's kind of odd whenever you think about what I know about the church, what I know about my, about my own heart. I can see Jesus being exalted, Jesus being worthy, but in the midst of that exaltation, in the midst of that, that Christ being, being lifted up and, and worshipped, the church is connected to it. They're surrounded. That is, a, is a clearly a display of, of God's grace. God has determined that Christ's eternal glorified position will be connected to the church. You've heard Adrian Rogers or others say, if, 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 you, don't, if you don't enjoy Jesus, you're not going to enjoy heaven. Because Jesus, heaven is all about Jesus. I would say to you, if you don't enjoy church, you're not going to enjoy heaven. <laughs> because the church is connected to Christ. And it is, while heaven is all about Jesus, it's right in the middle. The firstborn, in verse 18, from the dead, it, it, it's, the, it's the idea that his church will follow him and that that was so he would have preeminence. Jesus, in the resurrection and the life, is... Is the first never to die again. And in heaven, he'll have first place. And all those who follow him will, will as well. You think the church is, is, is outmoded or unimportant? I know I'm preaching to the choir with that question. Paul would answer that question, do you think Christ is unimportant? Do you think the resurrection is of no purpose? I mean, that's how close. Think of what, what Jesus says to Saul on the road to Damascus, right? What's he say? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's a direct connection between Jesus and the church. Now, again, not the church as a whole. Yes, there is a universal body of all believers out there that come to Christ in the church age. But I'm talking about Timberlake Baptist Church. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about your church. I'm talking about my church. Jesus is the head, and we're the body. Adrian Rogers, again, once talked about how ridiculous it was to say, I love Jesus and not the church. He, he gave the example I've shared with you before. It's like saying, I love the severed head, but not the rest of him. Did you say, Jesus didn't hurt people. He doesn't hurt people like the church does. You, you're right in many ways, but God has a plan for even that too. A wise man told me after I'd been saved for just a, just a few years that I began to struggle whenever I really learned that... <gasps> people in my church were sinners. That just blew my mind. Of course, he told me to look at myself. And he made this statement. He said, Brian, you can't judge the Savior by the saved. It's true. All people sin inside the church, outside of the church. We hate it. We loathe it as believers. And yet, those in the church are never proclaimed as sinless in the Bible. In fact, 
If that were the case, most of the New Testament letters would be useless, would be of no profit. I mean, think about the New Testament letters. You think that your church has got issues. Look at Corinth. Look at Colossae. Look at the seven churches of Revelation that we just walked through. All of the letters about how to deal with our fallen nature as part of the church. Written to gatherings, written to believers. The New Testament letters aren't written to unbelievers. Of course, if an unbeliever reads it and hears the gospel, praise God. But these are written to believers, gatherings. And having saved sinners as part of the church brings glory to Christ, brings hope to the lost, and gives us a tangible way to understand the gospel. Now, God hates all sin. It's not that he wants it to happen, but whenever it does, he finds some use for it. It brings glory to Christ. Sinners being part of the church glorifies Jesus because that's who he came to save, sinners. You're not part of a club that you're good enough to get into. You're part of the church that only Jesus was worthy enough to purchase, and you're here because of him, not because of anything good in you in me. It brings hope to the lost. The imperfections of the church. Sinners in the church give hope to the lost because those outside of Christ can see that the bar is based on Jesus and, and not them. Sinners don't keep people out of the kingdom. Sinners who pretend they don't sin are the individuals that people stumble over. And it also brings an understanding of the gospel. I mean, we say we believe the gospel, we use the term the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. God loved us while we were still sinners. When we sin against one another, it gives us a tangible, practical, visible way to put the gospel on display. We have to forgive that person. We have to treat them. Even though they're unrighteous, as if they never did anything wrong. You let them off the hook. You, you sit beside them on the pew every week. It gives you a tangible way to do that. You can go to other passages, Ephesians 3, 4 through 12, the manifold wisdom of God, the complete display of all of the wisdom of God is expressed in the church. It's displayed in the church. We don't, have, we don't have time to go there. Why you should love the church, why you should love this church, because the church is, is Christ's body. The church is also Christ's bride. We have a picture of when Tracy and I first met at, at about 16 years of age, and whenever I look at that picture, I'm reminded of how young I used to look. She hasn't changed, of course. I'm also reminded that I've been with Tracy. We've been together for a long time. As I said, we met when we were 16, and we've got almost 20-year-old now, plus four others. I frankly don't have many memories that don't include her. She's my wife. I have a particular interest in her. May I tell you tonight that Jesus Christ feels the exact same way about his church? He has a particular interest in her. In Scripture, the church is presented as the bride of Christ. 
He purchased her with his own blood. He, he's preparing a place to bring her. I mean, that's what he's doing in, in, in heaven, preparing a place. He, and he's returning for his church. All of that stuff that we were hearing this morning. When we got home today, Jared said, said, Now, Dad, just clarification. Everything that you were talking about today, the church is not going to be part of that, right? I said, You're exactly right, son, because we're going to be raptured. I mean, we're not going to go through any of that. Why? Because we've not been destined to wrath. <laughs> because we're the bride of Christ. And Jesus doesn't participate in domestic violence, as it says. He's not a wife beater. <laughs> He's going to take us to heaven. He's preparing a place for us. He's returning. Jesus gained the church at great personal cost, and He doesn't take too kindly to it when anyone tears her down or dismisses her for unnecessary. I, I don't want to... I mean, you can be vitriolic or otherwise, but, but I would not want to be George Barna and give an account for what he wrote in that book. I really wouldn't. I'm going to have a hard enough time giving an account for the things that I've done. But when I look at that, I say, wow. And just as you would not let somebody come into your house and tear your wife down or, or make fun of her, I don't think that you should allow people to do that for your church either. As a matter of fact, that ought to make you angry whenever people do that about your church. You wouldn't let somebody come in your house and talk about how inhospitable your wife is how bad her cooking was. You would, no one would ever say that in my house. How dirty the house is. And then say, hey, come on back next week and let's do it again. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't tolerate that. But how many of us have been in conversations with a member or a former one where they tear the church down? Or how about the under-shepherd, the pastors, or the deacons, or the Sunday school teacher, or whoever else else it is. That needs to be rebuked. It needs to be repented of, and it doesn't need to be encouraged or embraced by silence. Ted Cluck rightly stated, apparently some people imagine Jesus wants friends like that. They roll their eyes and they sigh over the church when Jesus Christ was willing to go to the cross and purchase the church with his own with his own blood. All right, continuing with our bees. Why you should love the church. It is the body of Christ. It's the bride of Christ. And the church is also Christ's building. One of the reasons Barna and others claim that the church as we know it should be set aside is because it's lost its purpose in our society today, he says. Congregational life is not needed in the 21st century. It's replaced with conversations at Starbucks over coffee or whatever else. That kind of thinking totally disregards the Bible and is ridiculous because God is the one who designed the church and He designed it with the internal intentions. The church is part of part of God's plan. I mean, we just sat here when we brought... Wasn't it a beautiful thing? Looking at all those members that were here the other night participating in the Lord's Supper, going down the hall and, and fellowshipping. We talked about Matthew 16 that night. The church is part of God's plan. It's, it's being built by the, by the Lord Himself. The, the church is the New Testament counterpart to the Old Testament temple. Not the building, but the people of God. God still has a plan for Israel. But this is the church age. It's a spiritual building. 
1 Peter 2, 5. It's the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16, it's the place where God's glory is most clearly manifested. It's the focal point of, of spiritual life, for the worship of the redeemed. God himself is the architect and builder, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints. You're, you are God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitly being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. The earliest place in the New Testament the church is mentioned of is mentioned is Matthew sixteen. It's the in the passage it's it's mentioned by Jesus himself. He's the possessor of the church the church. He says it's my church. He says he has a plan for the church. I will build my church and he says it's indestructible, the gates of Hades won't prevail against it. Now, can you think of anything else on the planet with those type of type of precious value that you could love and that you could give your life to and serve? There's nothing like that. Nothing ever created or even dreamed in the heart of man like the church. Christ is the builder and the foundation is the unshakable gospel. He's going to build it upon the, the rock, which is the confession that Peter makes, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the the living God. It is absolute assurance that it will continue into the next world. The gates of hell is not going to prevail against it. 1 Corinthians 3, when Paul is talking about taking care with what type of materials you, you use to build the church, the wood, hay, and, and stubble, and gold, and, and precious stones, he ends all of that in 1 Corinthians 3 with an example comparing the the tearing down of the temple with the tearing down of the church. And he gives a warning. He gives a really, really scary warning. He says, God will tear down any person that tears down that building, implying the church. You want God as your enemy? Attack his church. I'm serious. The church is... is the body, bride, the building, and the church also has Christ's blessing. Oh, there's all kinds of things that that are good. But the church of Jesus Christ, God has blessed. Listen to Matthew nine thirty seven. You know the passage, you missionaries, you probably preached it hundreds of times. Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. God is the Lord of the harvest. It's his harvest. We're the laborers. That doesn't belittle our role in any way. In fact, the passage calls us to pray for more. <laughs> pray to God that he would raise up more and send it out. What it does remind us is the church is the primary vehicle God has chosen to bless and accomplish that harvesting work. It's the gospel work. The Great Commission was given to the church. And yes, you have an individual part in it. The Christian life was never meant to be individual, to be an individual or private endeavor. The church is the assembly of believers. And I think it's probably easy when you think of Christianity, we tend to think individually. There's nothing wrong with that per se, as long as you keep it connected with the corporate. You have a personal Savior. 
You responded to an individual plan of salvation. You think Jesus died for me, and all of those things are true. But when you think those things, don't fail to think about the church. Because your Christianity is just as much plural as it is singular. In fact, that personal Savior has a body, and you're part of that body. That individual plan of salvation involves you being part of the manifold grace of God and the preeminent position of the church in all eternity. And yes, Jesus died for you, but He shed His blood for the church as well. I think if you examine the New Testament, there's good reason to conclude that if you're not part of a, of a local assembly, I understand there are exceptions. There's not much of the New Testament that you can obey. Not to mention you're going to be one really, really weak individual. The church is necessary for sanctification. It's the sphere in which God has promised to equip the saints to sanctify you. The Word's the primary instrument. It's applied through the Spirit. And yet the church is the sphere in which that happens. Is that what you think? You think discipleship? Do you think growth? You think, I want to grow in my Christian life. Church. You should. The Christian life is inextricably linked to others in the local church. Christianity is not an exercise of self. It's a submission to Christ and service to others. Corey Ten Boom said, Concentrate only on yourselves and you'll be depressed. Concentrate on others and you'll be distressed. Concentrate on Jesus and you'll be at rest. Amen. When you operate apart from the church, you operate in limited strength and limited wisdom. The church is, the, is all of the the gifts brought together, all of the gifts and all of the limitations so that we would serve one another and need one another. And Christ has promised to bless. Bless what the church does. And you're part of that. And lastly, it's the church is Christ's bounty. Turn over to Revelation 4. We're going to end with this. It should be a very familiar passage to you. I'm sorry, Revelation 5. You know, 4 is the picture of the, of the throne room. But I want to read again to you the new song in Revelation 5, verse, verse 9. Because here's a picture of the beginning of the end. It's the scene, as you know, right before Christ becomes the judge of the earth and unleashes the seals. John sees the Father with the scroll. No one's found worthy. Jesus is worthy. He is, he is the Lamb he, who, who has been slain and yet standing and now... He's worshipped with a, with a new song. And look at what they say. You're worthy to take the scroll and open its, open its seals. Why? For you were slain and have redeemed us to God, redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God. And we 
shall reign on the earth. Will reign on the earth. That is the that is the kingdom. They recount his worthiness because of his work. He was slain. His reward is what what he's won is this group of people out of every tongue, tribe, and nation. And they're made kings and priests, and they're going to reign on the earth. Christ's reward for His work is us. Is that not mind-blowing? That's mind-blowing. He has the right to judge those who reject Him, and He, has the, and he gives the right to those to reign those who received them. The church is the gathering of those people until He comes. Until Jesus comes, I understand there's wheat and tares. I understand that there are people in the church that aren't really saved. But this is the gathering of this group until Jesus comes. And we're still in process, aren't we? You know the little t-shirt of the little girl, be patient, God's not finished with me yet. That's exactly right, He's not. He's not finished with me or you. But when Jesus comes, His reward, part of it anyway, will be the church. How important is church? It's right there. And if if it's that important to God, it should be that important to us. And we ought to love it shared this with you before, I think. Ted Kluck's book, Don't Love the Church Because of What It Does for You Because Sooner or Later It Won't Do Enough. Don't Love the Church Because of a Leader Because Human Leaders Are Fallible and Will Let You Down. Don't Love the Church Because of a Program or Buildings or Activities Because All of Those Things Get Old. Don't Love the Church Because of a Certain Group of Friends Because Friendships Change and People Move. Love the church because of who shed his blood to obtain the church. Love the church because of who the church belongs to. Love the church because of who the church worships. Love the church because you love Jesus Christ and his glory. Love the church because Jesus is worthy and faithful and true. Love the church because Jesus loves the church. And all of God's people said, Amen. Let's bow. Oh, with your heads bowed, your eyes closed. I know I'm preaching to the choir. I mean, I I can always be encouraged by truth that I've heard before. And I, I know you love the church. I, I really do. I'm not just saying that. What a great church that we have here at, at Timberlake. And um, God be praised for you and for for the truth i would just ask you tonight as we as we close get ready to read this book and we're going to be hearing this series on, on sunday night i wonder if you would just take a challenge and just just pray where you're at and ask the lord to to rekindle your your joy your love your interest in the church not saying that it's 
that it's not there, but that He would just reinvigorate it. And that He would teach you something out of this, out of this study. Um, something that, that might help you, that might bring glory to God, and, and maybe might lead somebody else to, to Christ. Um, Father, as we come before You, we thank You for Your truth. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for helpful writers that um, clarify things for us, give us, gives us the same truths in, in different ways, different voices. Father, I pray you'll use this series to, to increase my love for, for your church, not just in general, but here, the people of Timberlake. Fill my heart, Lord, with sacrificial love for, for your people. Lord, um, deepen my, my, my resolve and desire to spend and be spent for them. Help me, Lord, to, to give of my, my life and my time and my resources for them, Lord. Help me to love them in a greater way, even though I already do, because your love is infinite. Um, Lord, if there's somebody here tonight that's not part of the church because they've never received Jesus Christ as their Savior, I pray that tonight they would hear about this wonderful thing called the body of Christ and that they would enter through the one and only door, which is you. Jesus, His sacrifice on the cross and His resurrection. I pray that they would do that tonight. I'd love to share with them how even after the service. Dismiss us with your blessing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Next Sunday night, you can read the, the first chapter. If you don't read in consecutive order, um, then you can read it after the fact. But it will help you. You, uh, if you read ahead. I don't even know which one's up next, but uh, you can follow along in the book. Lord bless you. Have a great night.